Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to Congressman Mike Gallagher. He represents Wisconsin's 8th District in Congress. Uh, By the way, he's a 7th generation Wisconsin native, so no question about how he got on this podcast, (laughs) Steve. But Congressman Gallagher is a former Marine. He did intel in Iraq, was deployed several times absolutely has thoughts on what is going on in Afghanistan. Let's dive right in. Congressman, uh, we are mourning for our service members today. And there has been so much that has led up to that moment. Uh, and plenty of second guessing and things we could have, should have done differently. But starting from today, what should the administration do moving forward? Well, uh, I mean, it's hard to set aside what happened. I mean, I think every, certainly every Marine is, is grieving for the loss of uh, 12 Marines and one uh, corpsman. Um, You know, it will go down as uh, one of the darkest days in Marine Corps history. You know, one is reminded of Beirut, Mayaguez, uh, things like that. And so just a real gut punch. Um, and you, your heart goes out to the families and, you know, the wives and the mothers and sisters and everyone who's anxiously uh, waiting to hear from uh, their, their loved ones who uh, were deployed downrange. So very sad day, very tragic. Where do we go from here? Um, you know, I, I have encouraged uh, the Biden administration, not only rhetorically, but through legislation to abandon the arbitrary August 31st uh, deadline. I guess I shouldn't call it arbitrary. My assumption is it's it has to do with September 11th, 2021 being the Biden's preferred date to get out of the country. And then you do some backwards planning and August 31st is the timeline that is necessary. And the Taliban are now exploiting that and have threatened us by saying, if you're there a second later than August, you know, midnight, August 31st, we're going to do some bad stuff. Uh, and it wasn't just me encouraging them to abandon that date, uh, at least in behind closed doors and classified sessions, there was a group of bipartisan legislators and some Democrats, particularly Democrats who'd served in Afghanistan, who were very, very critical of the administration. I know Democrats who have, were in the Oval Office this week urging the president to abandon that timeline, at least commit to staying until we get every American that wants to get out, out. And I think that's uh, the only thing we can do right now. I'm not deluding myself that, you know, we're going to reverse the broader decision to get out, that we're suddenly going to realize that it'd be nice to have Bagram, um, not just as a counterterrorism base, but as an asset in the long-term um, competition with China and as a way to threaten their space and counterspace assets on their Western flank. But at a minimum, I do believe there's more we can do to get all of our people out and get our Afghan allies out. And I think this idea that we're somehow going to rely on the, the interest of the Taliban in order to build a post-August 31st bridge, as one defense official described it to me, for those Afghan allies that we know we're not going to be able to get out is a total fantasy. And I'm fascinated by the language the Biden administration keeps deploying about the Taliban's interests. And I think the president talked about it yesterday, right? It's in the Taliban's interests to, I forget exactly what he said, but basically be a security partner with us and help us get our people out. 
I don't think the Biden administration in general and the president in particular has any freaking clue what's in the Taliban's interests, right? I mean, I guess the Taliban, yes, has an interest in us getting out. I understand that. But this argument they're making that because the Taliban wants humanitarian assistance post August 31st, wants a functioning international airport post August 31st, means that we somehow will have leverage because the Taliban is this rational actor sitting back and calculating their economic utility, I think is a total naive fantasy and represents like the worst of political science grafted on to the complexities of war. What's in the Taliban's interest since we've surrendered is to make that surrender as humiliating and painful as possible. And then more to the point, the Taliban's not a monolithic entity, right? All it takes is one stupid person, you know, taking Americans hostage which I have reason to believe Americans have already been taken hostage, and I think that the problem is going to get worse post-August 31st, to start to really mess up your neat and tidy theories about the Taliban acting in the way a Davos attendee would act, right? Um, So I don't know. The whole thing is a mess, and um, there are very few options we have right now. Um, And and so all we can do is just get our people out and, and not leave anybody behind. Steve? Let me pick up on that because I think it's um, really one of the sort of key um, failings of U.S. policy in Afghanistan over the past three administrations, really. And that is this desire to see the Taliban as something the Taliban is not. Um, It started with the Obama administration, where we had uh, negotiations with the Taliban as if they would be partners in peace. Uh, You saw it with the Trump administration. When you had senior Trump administration officials, including the president, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, insist that the Taliban would be America's counterterrorism partner in Afghanistan, fighting Al Qaeda and others. And now you're seeing this in from the Biden administration at sort of a, a greater scale. What's the thinking behind this? I mean, you you spent a lot of time thinking about foreign policy. You understand kind of the complexities here. What, what's the charitable understanding of that? The charitable understanding. Well, listen, I, I think the the honest argument that the Biden administration thus far does not want to make, although I think it's sort of what Biden's getting at with this, hey, this was always going to happen stuff he's been saying, is, is someone had to rip off the Band-Aid. It was always going to be painful. We're ripping off the Band-Aid. And then lying behind that honest argument is a cynical argument that perhaps Ron Klain is making to Biden, which is this is going to be a bad news cycle. We'll manage it and then it will blow over. And that's all it is. And then a month from now, no one will care about Afghanistan. But more directly to answer your question, there seems to be another talking point that I've, I've just detected coming from all these Biden people, which is you've heard a few of them say, Whenever they say the Taliban, whenever they say ISIS K, ISIS Khorasan, they'll say, which is the sworn enemy of the Taliban, right? Yeah. And this reminds me of of kind of the argument that was made uh, to justify the pullout of Iraq and also by extension to justify the pullout uh, or the the rapprochement with Iran, which is which was a suggestion that, okay, we didn't really need to worry about like the role Shia militias were playing in Iraq because they're fighting ISIS. And this is sort of the Sarah Palin, let Allah sort them out argument, right? It's these groups hate each other, right? ISIS uh, 
defected from Al Qaeda and they're now sworn enemies. So of course we can just let them kill each other and that's all going to work out. Well, that doesn't work, right? Because when Salafi jihadists uh, fight each other, they start to attract a bunch of Salafi jihadists to that fight. And the people that tend to get killed are not just crazy Salafi jihadists. It's a lot of civilians and a lot of our allies that are stuck in the middle. It's too early to tell, but I think there's like a similar thing going on here where they're starting to suggest that, okay, the Taliban, you know, we can't trust them, but we have mutual interests. They're they're going to kill ISIS-K yeah. guys. And really, all we care about is Al-Qaeda and ISIS-K. So there's a workable framework here. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's right. But but I would suggest it's even worse than, than your depiction makes it look because we're actively taking sides in, the, in this scenario. So it's not just like let them kill themselves and sort it out, which would be kind of the, the, the logical end of the non-interventionist argument, right? Like it's not our business, it's hands off, they, they figure it out. In this case, what we're saying is, no, we are taking a side and our side is the side of the Taliban. And, you know, the, the, the deputy leader of the Taliban, yes, he's Siraj Haqqani. Yes, we have $10 million bounty on his head. Yes, he's long been involved with Al-Qaeda. Yes, the Haqqani network has killed Americans, actively fought Americans for two decades in Afghanistan. But they could be useful to us right now. I mean, I guess the the the, the I, I want to go beyond just criticizing because obviously this is something that gets me very fired up. But I'd like to try to understand the logic. I mean, I really would like to understand what's what is the case there. Like, what do they think is likely to happen by teaming up with or pretending to partner with the group that harbored Al Qaeda and prepared the ground for the nine eleven attacks. Well, are, so are they going to be the ones providing us, given that our intelligence collection capabilities will be severely impacted by this pullout, right? I mean, the CIA needs support to collect human intelligence. Yes. There are limits even via SIGINT to what you can collect. Are they going to be providing us the intel that's going to be driving our targeting? That's the other thing I've, I've never in the past six months heard anybody Explain to me, and I'm open to entertaining the most charitable version of this argument. If we're doing over-the-horizon counterterrorism, how does that work? How do you generate the intel? If you don't, how, have how do you get over the impossible geography that Afghanistan presents? Our drones can't fly forever; they need fuel to fly. Uh, particularly since Putin said, "Hell no, I'm not going to allow you to uh, establish alternative bases in some of the other stands." Another humiliation for America in this mess. How does it work? I'm, I'm open to the idea. If we can do it over the horizon, that'd be great. I just don't think it's possible as a matter of geography and math. And as an Intel guy, I mean, it, it's just a fantasy to think you're going to have these beautiful target sets appear without the ability to collect intelligence on the ground. You know, the other thing I find fascinating, I'm sorry to go on, because these are all just, I mean, listen, we all got arguments and we need to test these arguments against reality. Okay. Jake Sullivan seems to suggest that we, okay, don't worry about our, don't worry about our commitments in the Indo-Pacific, the real priority theater. They're sacrosanct. The people of Taiwan should not be afraid. Japan, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we are, we're, we're doing, we're going to have more bandwidth to focus on China and this won't have a bad reputational effect. Okay. If I grant the idea, and I don't, by the way, that there will be no reputational impact from the pullout in Afghanistan, then I'm putting all my eggs in the bag and that we really just need to focus on the Indo-Pacific. For that, I'm putting all my eggs in the basket 
uh, of, in the basket of the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific being favorable to the United States. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, it is less favorable. So even if the pullout in, in Afghanistan doesn't affect the credibility of our commitments, the fact that we are failing to field conventional assets in the first island chain with the appropriate alacrity that we need to undermines our military deterrence in that region, the so-called priority region, in part because of the Biden administration's defense budget and some of the stupid things it wants to do and some of the nonsense that the Secretary of Defense is talking about with integrated deterrence, which is a buzz phrase to cover up for an unwillingness to invest in conventional hard power. So none of this makes sense to me. Uh, Maybe I just don't understand it, but I haven't seen anyone in the Biden administration come up and, and make a coherent argument. So what is the role of Congress at this point? You mentioned legislation that you proposed. We still have the AUMF, the uh, Authorized Use of Military Force, out there. Um, Was Congress going to start flexing a little here? Will it matter after 2022 if Republicans retake the House, or will this be a long memory? What would you say you do here, Congressman? Office space explains the world, by the way. I, that is man, or at least explains the it's good that government. he picked up on yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. What would you say? Why should I have to change my name? He's the one who sucks. Um, uh, that is a Michael Bolton reference. For yeah, those that's of you who Michael have not Bolton. seen Office Space. Um, I want check me on this. I believe I once wrote uh, an article about counter- intelligence and counterinsurgency that had Office Space references in it. So. I forget where it was. It might have been in the Small Wars Journal when I was a precocious first lieutenant. Um, uh, So the legislation that I had on the floor, which was the previous question to this bigger $5 trillion rule, it's a fancy parliamentary. Basically, we get Republicans get one shot to try and, you know, send these these Democrat bills back to committee. and, And the bill, my bill was that shot. And it basically would have required the administration to do daily reporting to us on the number of Americans left in the country, uh, as well as the number of Afghan uh, Afghans seeking refuge, and then would have prevented them from pulling out all troops until we'd gotten all Americans out. Obviously, that raises constitutional questions about the role of Congress, but I'm a Article I uh, conservative. Uh, we can get into that if you'd like. Uh, so I still think it would be wise for us to reconvene um, and to try and at least get the administration to be more forthcoming on their efforts to get Americans out of country. Again, I'm increasingly, um, uh, you know, resigned to the fact that Biden is inflexible on the August 31st date. But but I still think it's useful for us to push them on just the basic numbers of people that we're leaving behind. After August 31st, I, I do think we need to demand that they come to us and, and explain how are we doing counterterrorism in Afghanistan and in Central Asia and throughout the Middle East and what's it going to require. And if we're we now have, you know, in the immediate $6 billion that we're not going to spend on Afghanistan, how are we best investing that money? Uh, as for the AUMF, you know, we did, I think, somewhat productively pass the repeal of the, or in the House at least, the repeal of the Iraq AUMF. The 2001 AUMF is a much harder discussion. My view is that it's long past time for us to repeal and replace uh, that AUMF uh, with something that could have a no tactical or geographic limits in it, but um, a five-year sunset, perhaps, that would force Congress to revisit it um, every five years and then have robust reporting requirements in terms of the groups that we're actually targeting. And then there's this question of accountability that we're wrestling with. Um, you know, I do think the administration uh, 
people need to be held accountable, uh, whether that's the resignation of the Secretary of State or Defense or National Security Advisor. I don't know. Um, you know, I highly doubt the president himself is going to resign. I'm not sure we'd be trading up by putting uh, Kamala Harris in that role. Um, but someone uh, needs to be held accountable. Um, and Congress, uh, in, in a democratically controlled House, I would expect to do nothing. But if we retake the House in 2022, um, I do think we need to do a thorough investigation and hold people accountable for this epic operational failure, this planning failure. I early had called it an intelligence failure. I sort of want to retract that. I'm not exactly sure it was an intelligence failure. One, as an intelligence guy, there there are no intelligence successes, only intelligence failures. Uh, and I think the intelligence community did warn about um, the uh, rapidity with which the country could collapse. Uh, they had various timelines for that collapse. But um, I think ultimately it was a, a leadership failure, starting with the president uh, and then a planning failure um, that extends to the State Department and DOD. And so I think Congress has a very important role to, uh, to play in terms of investigating that. And I think all Republicans need to sort of rediscover our traditional arguments for, um, you know, a conservative internationalist policy. And I think that's a winning issue for uh, us politically as well. Um, the final thing I'd say is on that, you know, I do think the traditional argument is that foreign policy doesn't matter politically. Um, I got it. I understand. But in 2016, at least, I, I don't think that was the case. Um, you know, as I've told Steve, we may have talked about before, uh, you know, and, and, and what I think has very bizarre and, and tragic uh, echoes to what we're dealing with right now. Um, the threat from ISIS really did affect people in 2016 because it wasn't just a, oh my gosh, there's a terrorist state carved out in the heart of the Middle East the size of Indiana. It was a string of terrorist attacks across the world uh, to include uh, in America, we had domestic terrorism, San Bernardino, but uh, Pulse nightclub uh, had a very immediate political impact because uh, Hillary Clinton canceled her first appearance that she was going to do with Barack Obama on the campaign trail, which was going to be in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And she infamously never came back to Wisconsin because of that attack. And so I think there comes a point at which people sort of feel like the world is getting less safe and it's affecting them domestically, as well as I think a point at which, you know, the humiliation of America on the world stage triggers some Jacksonian impulse. And people, even like more isolationist minded Americans are like, I don't like that we're getting pushed around. This is just, this This is not how it should be with America. So our our, our producer, Ryan Brown, uh, has actually located your uh, article with office space references in Small Wars Journal. We will put that in the show notes. <gasps> sure, it's terrible. Let me pick up on that that point that you are making, though, because the, the the foreign policy positions you outlined for the Republican Party are somewhat at odds with the foreign policy as practiced by the Trump administration. As I said, you had Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo running cover effectively for the Taliban. The, the, the roots of the catastrophe that we're seeing now, I mean, we should be very clear. I think Joe Biden and his administration bear the blame for what we're seeing. Full stop. End of discussion. But the roots of this, this policy, the path, really started in the Obama administration, but the pace accelerated considerably with the horrendous deal that the Trump administration struck in February of 2020 and then sold to the American public. The key sort of plank of that deal being the U.S. is going to work with the Taliban, this is kind of kinder, gentler Taliban. And that was undertaken, in my view, because Donald Trump 
wanted a less involved America. Um, you know, in, in that sense, there is a fair amount of continuity between what we're seeing from the Biden administration and the Trump administration. How much do you think you have to sort of wrestle back a traditional Republican foreign policy when the party at large has moved in that tr- Trumpy direction? You know, my honest answer is I don't know. I think the flaw in the Doha deal, or there are at least two glaring flaws in the Doha deal, right? One was just that the Afghan government really wasn't involved in uh, deliberately uh, excluded. At deliberately the excluded. The Taliban, yes. I still don't know what Zal Khalzad, what is what he was doing and what his role was in all of this, and so uh, it, so that that uh, kind of doomed it to failure, as well as as you lay out, just this idea that the Taliban was going to be killing uh, al-Qaeda for us, I think, was um, was wrong-headed um, and deeply flawed. Um, they, I guess their counter-argument is that it was conditions-based. The Taliban violated the Doha Agreement uh, it, as early as March of 2021, and therefore, had Trump been in the second term, he would have done things differently. Uh, I guess being a counterfactual, we'll never know. Um, but the Doha deal was flawed. And I think it gets to this broader issue within uh, the Republican Party, which is that, you know, this sort of this we need to end endless wars and that somehow, you know, by precipitously pulling out a couple thousand troops from Afghanistan in order to get that mission accomplished moment, we're somehow going to be setting ourselves up for success geopolitically. I think my own view, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq and Syria, actually, is that we arrived through a very inefficient process of trial and error at a sustainable posture, which is for a very modest and small investment of U.S. resources, largely special operators and largely enablers, right? Working by, with, and through local allies on the ground who are bearing the brunt of the fighting. And we provide intel, we provide logistical support, we provide, you know, air support, et cetera, et cetera. For a, for a small investment with a light footprint, you can have a huge impact, or at least you can secure very narrowly defined national security objectives. And that, to me, is the best way to avoid a intensely chaotic situation that requires you to divert your attention from more important national security priorities. And I do think China is a much more important national security priority over the long term. So I don't know. I think we got to make the case that, okay, if your view is we're overextended in the Middle East and we really need to invest resources in uh, the Indo-Pacific to focus on China, the best way to do that is to be forward deployed with a small footprint working with local allies and thereby avoid a complete collapse of our position. Uh, Avoid what we saw happen in Iraq uh, uh, in the second half of the Obama administration. And then I think, as I alluded to before, I really think we failed to make the case for why Bagram was valuable in the China fight, not just as a counterterrorism base, but as an asset in the long term fight against China. Um, And then obviously, I think the other controversial uh, aspect of U.S. foreign policy within the Republican Party is the role of allies. And I do think there is a wing that thinks our allies stink and they're they're more uh, trouble than they're worth. Uh, ironically, this is the view of a lot of progressives as well, particularly when it comes to our Middle East allies. So I think we really need to do a better job of 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 not only talking about the value of our allies, but actually working with our allies to develop common 
uh, war plans, right? So for example, the, the, the debate about NATO is always about our allies don't contribute 2%. They don't meet their 2%. Well, to, we shouldn't care as much about the inputs as the outputs, right? Like it doesn't matter as much if Greece is paying 2% of their GDP uh, and contributing that to NATO. It matters more what is Greece going to contribute to the actual mission of deterring Russia by denial. And we don't do that in NATO. We certainly don't do that with our allies in the Indo-Pacific. And to this day, no one in the Pentagon has sat down with me in front of a map and said, okay, when the Taiwan scenario happens, here's what we're doing. Here's what the Aussies are bringing to the fight. Here's what the Japanese are bringing to the fight. Here's what the Taiwanese are capable of right now. That's an area where I think we can actually have a more powerful and practical argument in terms of what our allies contribute to our own defense and to their own defense that we just have failed to do recently, if that makes sense. Sorry, I've only had one cup of coffee. I'm not making a lot of sense. Uh, I want you to tell us where you're going from here. And I'm curious, as you meet uh, our newest countrymen, and I'm so excited to call them that, by the way, these people who uh, have shown such a love of the United States. I'm curious whether you'll be proselytizing the Packers or if you have some other reason for meeting with them. <laughs> well, that's a requirement. Anyone who moves to Wisconsin, even if they're already an American citizen, has to renounce their previous sports allegiances and, and root for the Packers um, and chug a lot of beer. It's a weird it's a weird quirk of our state constitution. Um uh, so I'm going to Fort McCoy just to see how their what their process is for dealing with uh, a lot of these Afghan uh, refugees. You know, I think uh, you know obviously there's some concern in conservative circles about the vetting requirements and how many people we're letting in. You know, my own view is particularly if you qualify for the SIV program, if you fought with us, you know, we should be doing everything possible to get you out of the country and 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 making sure you're eligible for the SIV program. It has very high level requirements. It's all uh, well and good. And we should have robust vetting procedures. But um, I'm hoping to, you know, provided we we have a good discussion with the military leaders down at Fort McCoy, uh, alleviate some of those uh, concerns uh, with my constituents. And uh, I really do think it will have damaging consequences for our national security and our ability to fight uh, in the future, if we abandon um, our Afghan allies, particularly those who fought with us. And if we turn our back on uh, people are eligible, in particular for the SIV program, and then for people that aren't eligible for that program, I'm aware of a bunch of private philanthropic efforts underway right now to charter private planes and resettle um, Afghan women, for example, civil society leaders, uh, journalists in third party countries, African countries, Serbia, North Macedonia, et cetera, et cetera. But in many cases, they just can't get permission to land or state I've heard is actively telling people don't get on airplanes, don't come to the airport. And so these chartered planes land and maybe three people get out on a plane that could have taken hundreds. Uh, that to me is a tragedy. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done in terms of getting our, our allies out of the country. And then I think alleviating the concerns of a lot of uh, people about our vetting procedures. And so hopefully this is a, a step in that direction in, on my visit today. Well, as a Texan, please let them know about the great republic to their south. Uh, we'd, we'd love to have them there. We have some amazing sports teams, including, unfortunately, uh, one that cheated in the World Series not too long ago. So, you know, there's always that. Well, have you ever read uh, Empire of the Summer Moon? No. It is an amazing... Oh, my gosh. It is. I just read this book. It's about Texas. It's about, like, Texas settlers fighting Comanches. It is so brutal. 
and it is it is an and and it's a it ends up being a story about technology because the Comanches were kicking our butt because they had better technology. They were better uh, horsemen, and their ability to fire arrows at a rapid pace what just totally dominated us. And so until we had advances in repeating rifles and, and pistols, uh, we, we couldn't turn the tide. And so I highly recommend that book, but it's not for the faint of heart. It is so, so brutal. So you'd think your life is hard. Imagine these Texas Rangers and settlers and their battles with the Comanches. That's well, my Texas reading. Yeah, yeah, no, like this podcast has had it all. We have uh, a great article that we're posting in our show notes that talks oh, about gosh. the office space pathology. You have a book recommendation. <laughs> this is this is all you can ask for in a 25 minute podcast. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, safe travels and uh, welcome. <laughs>